Do you like coffee? I know that you do, and that's why I want to tell you about Fresh Roasted Coffee. Fresh Roasted is a locally owned and operated coffee house right here in central Pennsylvania that is committed to providing the highest quality coffee on earth. They do so by sourcing only the freshest coffee beans and by using the most eco-friendly roasting technology in the world. Fresh Roasted's USDA certified organic coffee beans ensure that your coffee is consistently regulated at each stage of the production process and completely free of GMOs and harmful synthetic substances. Fresh Roasted Coffee roasts their beans per order with immediate packaging and shipping directly to your door, meaning that you get to experience fresh coffee at its peak drinkability. That's what I like. I was introduced to Fresh Roasted Coffee soon after moving to central Pennsylvania, and I'm so happy I was because I think it's literally the best coffee out there. Their Blackbeard's Revenge blend is out of this world good. Whether you use a regular drip coffee maker or a pour-over or a French press, however you get your coffee fix, make it fresh roasted. Go to the link in the notes for this show and use the offer code GRACE10 at checkout. That's offer code GRACE10 at checkout to get a discount on your next order. Welcome to another episode of the Ministry Minded Podcast. This is a show that seeks to marvel at the mercy of God that meets us in our messy ministries. I'm Brad Gray. I'm the pastor of Stonington Baptist Church in Paxinos, Pennsylvania. Uh, and this is volume five of what I've uh, entitled Pastor Brad's Corner, which is just a weekly space I, I try to carve out and just kind of pause and reflect from all of the sort of sermon preparation and uh, sort of ministerial administration type stuff and just kind of reflect on uh, some things that I've been pondering since um, I've delivered sermons on Sundays and whatnot and to just kind of share uh, some more applications, some uh, helpful resources that might help you uh, further think about some of the things that I've been uh, teaching on or going through and the things that I've just been uh, mulling over as well. So, um I like to do this just because uh, I think, it, um, I, as I've reiterated a couple times uh, regarding this sort of little corner, uh, it's just the fact that it's so easy to um, listen to a sermon and to write down notes and all those sorts of things and not really let it sort of impact you or uh, resonate with you even more than just that one time when you're in the church service. And I know that even for me, it's like uh, I deliver a sermon and I don't really go back and and really reflect on what that sermon means. Even for me, it's easy to just get up there and expound sometimes on uh, this is what the sermon means. But uh, reflecting more on the fact of this is what the sermon means for me uh, as well. Um, and so that's really what I want to do is just kind of pause, take a step back, and really chew on some of these things again. And uh, this week I was blessed with uh, getting back into sort of the uh, regular routine of uh, preaching two sermons. Uh, so we have uh, started to our regathering process as a church at Stonington Baptist Church. And uh, so I was able to, I was blessed with the opportunity to preach a morning and an evening service again. And uh, it's been a while since I've done two sermon preps, but it was uh, a blessing uh, to be able to share God's word uh, in two different worship services. I'm thankful for every time we're able to assemble and gather, and uh, this week was uh, just a truly, uh, truly a blessing. In fact, it was even more of a blessing 
I have to share this with you that this was uh, marked the year anniversary of when I first joined and became uh, the pastor of Stonington Baptist Church. Uh, one year to this past weekend, uh, which is quite remarkable. It's been quite a, a year full of a lot of uh, a lot of newness, a lot of transition, a lot of things have happened, of course, in this past year. Uh, but it was really uh, amazing to uh, just think about all that God has done in the past 12 months and that where God has brought us, as brought myself and Natalie and our family, and also as a church family, uh, all the things that we have uh, uh, endured and uh, grown through and gone through. And so it was just a blessing to be in the pulpit. And uh, it was awesome, too, because we were able to uh, share um in the Lord's Supper. Uh, so at Starting at Baptist Church, we uh, participate in the Lord's Supper uh, the, on the first Sunday of every month. And so it, that was um, uh, hopeful in and of itself. And then even more so, uh, we were able to preach on the Lord's Supper as seen in the Gospel of Mark. So if you're familiar, uh, I've been going through the Gospel of Mark on Sunday mornings for quite some time now. This was part number 30 in that series, going through the Gospel of uh, a Gospel according to Mark. And uh, it would just fit so perfectly that we're able to sort of expound uh, the Lord's Supper while participating participating in the Lord's Supper. And uh, in Mark's verse, it really keeps in in line with what Mark has really has developed at his as his style, so to speak, in that sense that um, it's a brief narrative. It's full of kind of quick movements, so to speak, but it also is full of a lot of really interesting details. Um, at least in Mark's version of this first Passover in the Lord's Supper. And, uh, which is why I love Mark's Gospel, uh, and I love this version of the Lord's Supper and this institution of the Lord's Supper. Um, because I find it so fascinating how Jesus really reorients and kind of reorders and reshapes and, uh, in a really radical way, um, what the apostles were thinking when it came to the Passover. So uh, in the apostles' minds, this was just another Passover Seder that they were going to enjoy with their teacher, and they made all the necessary preparations and all those sorts of things. And yet, at, and during the Passover, what I love about uh, this account is just the fact that Jesus totally reorients what they were supposed to think and uh, memorialize when it came to this moment. So instead of just memorializing the fact that uh, that uh, God providentially delivered their ancestors from bondage uh, in Egypt uh, so many uh, millennia ago, he is now uh, using this moment to memorialize what? His future death, uh, which hasn't happened yet, and he's saying that this is going to be a memorial of what I am going to do, <laughs> which is uh, conquer death by dying. Um, and I love the fact that he uses this moment to affirm the fact that all of this, all of these things, they are pointing to me. And in that sense, uh, Jesus in this passage becomes the true and the better Passover lamb. He becomes the uh, one through whom this new covenant is established. Let me just read you that verse there in Mark chapter 14 where he says that. He says, um, And as they were eating, Jesus took bread, blessed, and broke it, and gave it to them and said, Take, eat, this is my body. Then he took the cup, and when he had given things, he gave it to them, and they all drank from it. 
And he said to them, This is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many. And I love this wonderful fact that here Jesus is enacting, he's instituting this blessed, wonderful uh, moment where we can memorialize this new covenant that he is establishing through his blood. <coughs> this new covenant through the blood that he was going to shed, and that this is what this is picturing, this is what this is um, uh, portraying is that there's a new covenant being established through the shedding of his blood, by the way, which hasn't happened yet. And it's going to be uh, something that is much larger, much bigger than they were even thinking. Uh, remember, all the all this time that the apostles are still kind of thinking with sort of a nationalistic sort of idea of what the Messiah was uh, supposed to do and would do. And here... Jesus, again, is broadening what they think, what they should come to know and believe, um, is that this new covenant, it was going to be a new covenant of his blood, and such that this kingdom would be one that was a lot bigger than they were thinking. Um, and it brings us to that wonderful passage, I even read it on Sunday from Jeremiah 31, uh, of what the new covenant really means. It's a new covenant of people from all kindreds and tribes and tongues and nations, and they are being brought in to be God's people. That They are going to be my people, and I'm going to be their God. And why? Because my blood is going to cover their sins. And it's that wonderful phrase, that wonderful verse. Uh, let me turn there in Jeremiah 31. We have this wonderful articulation of the new covenant, which is what Jesus is uh, really getting at here in Mark 14. And we get to that wonderful, wonderful promise in Jeremiah 31, where he says, No more shall every man teach his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them, says the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. How is that for a promise? How, how about that for a promise about the new covenant? That no more is their sin going to be remembered. It's going to be washed, taken away under the blood of this new covenant. And he's establishing this here for his apostles, here in this upper room, in this place where uh, in a few short hours Jesus was going to be betrayed. And he's establishing this sacred institution of of a memorial, of a remembrance of, of his death, where Jesus is the true and better Passover lamb. And, uh, and how is that so? Because his blood covers us such that when, G when God the Father's wrath is coming down on us, it passes over us. Much like, by the way, the angel of judgment that came on Egypt passed over the households of those who had the blood on the door frames. So we who have the blood on us are passed over by that angel of judgment. Why? Because Jesus bears that judgment for us. Jesus takes away that wrath for us. All of the justice that was due our sin was taken by him. And so now we are now enabled to be God's people in this blessed covenant. Uh, th this passage, this institution of the Lord's Supper is incredible to me. Um, it's one that is 
so filled with meaning uh, for us as a church, for us as the church even now, today, uh, because uh, like I began the sermon saying, um, there's almost nothing that connects us, uh, not only to Christ, but to the early church more than our participation in communion. And uh, whether you do that on a weekly basis or a monthly basis, uh, the point is, uh, participating in the Lord's Supper is what connects you to this early church and even to the apostles themselves as they were establishing the church, uh, because this is what they uh, looked back on and would remember, is that this was the establishment of the new covenant. And um, there's a lot I could say, I think, about this sermon. Um, just the just how it moves, how it progresses, how Jesus you know, was everywhere asserting the fact that uh, what he is doing is what has been predicted for so long. And uh, I just love how how Jesus interacts with his uh, with his apostles here in this upper room. How he takes this supper, and how in the middle of the supper he predicts someone uh, betraying him. Uh, there's a lot I could say, but I kind of want to move on to uh, the other sermon that I I delivered on Sunday. So uh, on Sunday evening, I was able to deliver a sermon from Acts chapter 13. Uh, this was a sermon that I really labored over in terms of the words um, that I wanted to include in it and I that I was uh, praying about and, uh, that God would lead me in uh, the right direction. It was a challenging sermon. Um, it really came to fruition uh, in light of recent events in our country uh, that has really, I think, brought everyone seemingly to the edge of sanity. Uh, not only do you have these weeks and weeks and weeks of societal lockdowns uh, that have brought us to a place where we are incredibly uncomfortable, now you have the outbreak of of and the heightening of racial uh, tensions, social justice tensions. Um, it is something that we have uh, for a long time, I think, been feeling, and I think that this is leading us to this place. And uh, I didn't want to make this sermon um, one that was a comment on these events. I didn't want to make it such that I was uh, 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 somehow uh, preaching from the headlines. I wanted to open the word and uh, provide some hope and peace and some clarity into this really chaotic time. Uh, I think what has led to a lot of these racial tensions is just the fact that so many people have talked over one another instead of talking to one another. Uh, and I wanted to take a step back um, to really pause, reflect, and, and, and root us and ground us in what is hopeful and what is um, what we can look to as a, a hope in this incredibly chaotic and turbulent time, which leads us to this passage at the beginning of Acts chapter 13, where you have in the upper, in this room uh, at the Church of Antioch, all of these uh, characters. Um, I'll, I'll just read you these verses. I, I took my passage from Acts chapter 13, verse 1. Where it says, Now in the church that was at Antioch, there were certain prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manaean, who had been brought up with Herod, the Tetrarch, and Saul. And they ministered to the Lord and fasted. And I went on, and I, what I was trying to do through this sermon in Acts chapter 13 was just establish the fact that 
The gospel is in this passage, just in the fact that you have these five men in the room together. Uh, It is a wonderful thing to see these men not only ministering to the Lord, but they're fasting and praying. They are serving God. They're worshiping God. They are seeking the Holy Spirit's guidance. And in fact, in a few, uh, just a few short verses, we are given the record of this council sending out Paul and Barnabas to begin sort of the, the, the outward ministry of the gospel, the advancement of the gospel. And just having these men in the same room together, that's the gospel being displayed and evidenced for us. Uh, looking at these men's backgrounds, there should have been no reason that they were in the same room with one another. They were from different nationalities. They were from different bloodlines. They were from different um, different views on uh, the world. They were from different um, upbringings. They had all of these different biases and prejudices that were going into this moment. And here you have and you see and we uh, can look at them being united, being united with one another. And what is uniting them? It comes in verse 5. And so they send out Paul and Barnabas. It says, so being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia. And from there, they sailed to Cyprus. And when they arrived in Salamis, they preached the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews. What is uniting them? The exaltation, the proclamation, and the furtherance of the word of God which, by the way, has everywhere been uh, motivating them and reconciling them and uniting them together. Uh, I really I invite you to listen to that sermon uh, because I feel like it was one that, uh, it was a challenging one to deliver, but it is one that I'm very encouraged to have uh, been able to deliver because I think that, yes, there are things that we can do. There are ways that we can go about seeking reconciliation with our brothers who are hurting, with our sisters who are grieving, with this tumultuous time in our society in which it seems like everyone is at each other's throats. But for the church especially, uh, I, I'm trying to step back and to, uh, to make sure <laughs> that I'm seeking wise counsel, but to also step back and remember what unites people from differing bloodlines and backgrounds. It's what? It's the Word of God, which what tells us about, uh, namely, the blood of God, which covers sins, which unites brothers and sisters together by what? The blood of Christ himself. This is what Christ was preaching. This is what we preach in the gospel. Uh, this is what we are uh, will continue to preach, uh, at least at Stonington Baptist Church, we will, uh, that there is nothing that unites people better and more firmly and stronger than the word of God itself. This is what unites us. This is what keeps us rooted and grounded. And this is why uh, we have to keep all of these different gospel stories and scenes and moments tied together. They're tied together by what the blood of Christ shed for us, uh, which makes all of these people God's people, which makes all of these people from all of these different uh, places and backgrounds and uh, everything, it brings them together in God's family. And they're brought in together by what? God's blood. God's blood shed for us. This is, this is what makes that covenant so amazing. This is what makes this gospel so incredibly radical. 
because it tells us about the fact that God bleeds to make sinning people his people. He bleeds for us. He bleeds uh, blood on that cross shed for us so that we might be his people. This is the good news. This is the good news I was hoping to uh, elaborate on. I hope that um, that you were encouraged by the sermons. If you haven't listened, I really invite you to listen. I'll link to uh, those sermons in the notes for this show. Um, but I really encourage you to listen to both of those sermons. I, I feel like even though they were from different scenes in the New Testament narrative, they are really connected. Uh, they are really united in themselves. Uh, number one, just by showing us Jesus. But number two, they're showing us just what this gospel and the gospel of this new covenant does in the lives of those that it reforms, that it, that it changes, that it, um, that it, it, it completely, um, changes their lives in a really remarkable way. So the next story I wanted to share with you um, is, um, I call it the story of grace story. So uh, there's this book that I have, well, let me just start by sharing this. Um, in an article for the website, The Place for Truth, uh, John Beagle, uh, he chronicles this journey that he has had, uh, with his own sort of journey of faith, I might, I might call it, um, with Dr. Horatius Bonar's work, The, uh, The Everlasting Righteousness, which, if you haven't read The Everlasting Righteousness, I strongly suggest that you do. Uh, it's a work by my favorite, uh, cr- uh theological writer, Horatius Bonar, and, um, this, this book that recounts um, the righteousness of God that is given to us in the gospel. Uh, but John, uh, he writes this sort of testimony of sorts of his own sort of renewal of faith as he's reading this book, this book by Bonar. And um, I just thought I want to share the, just a quick passage and also share my own sort of uh, sort of revelation of faith, you might call it, my gospel wakefulness story, so to speak, uh, coming through uh, my introduction to Bonar. So uh, John is writing in this article called Good News from a Far Country, Learning the Gospel from a 19th Century Scotsman. And he recounts, John, quote, More than anyone else I've ever read, Bonar makes the central truths of the chief article of the gospel piercingly and pastorally clear. I would echo that, by the way. Uh, Bonar, in all of his writings, he is in so incredibly clear and pastoral with what these really grand truths of the gospel really mean. Uh, continuing, quote, And a clear gospel is essential for both the heart and work of a minister, indeed every Christian. In God's providential kindness, I came across Bonar's book, The Everlasting Righteousness, when I needed it most. Although I was already in my second semester of seminary, for several years I had struggled deeply with assurance of my salvation. I find myself alternately anxious and ashamed, laden with guilt and full of fears. It was at this point that God provided me with a pastor in Horatius Bonar, who, though writing over a century before I was born, seemed to know me. As I read it, it became increasingly apparent to me that I had not only a deficient understanding of assurance, but also of saving faith and the complete sufficiency of the finished work of Christ. In short, I began to see that I had a deficient understanding of the gospel. Um, 
I invite you to read this article. Uh, it will give you a really good overview of the everlasting righteousness. But I will also read it because I think you'll find uh, really clear a really clear examination of what the assurance that we can have in the gospel. But also, this article really resonated with me, and I echoed John's sentiments really loudly just because I, too, have found almost a pseudo-pastor of sorts uh, in Horatius Bonar's work. So uh, one of my favorite books, I actually just bought it. This is an, uh, an 1860s edition of the story of grace, the story of grace, which I'll link to. You can read, you can, you can read it online for free at, in Google books. But the story of grace is, I, I will say this so uh, adamantly and matter of factly, the story of grace is my favorite book on the gospel of grace ever written. Bar none, uh, it, it expounds the, the notions, the doctrines, the truths of God's grace, uh, starting all the way back at the Garden of Eden to, uh, up where her Horatius Bonar was actually writing. And you can read this book and you will be enamored by his his articulation of what this grace means. It's an articulation of grace that just goes so far beyond what you what you have commonly understood it, and where you can are made to realize that all of God's workings and doings with us are because of grace. And I, I speak so passionately about it, and I am echoing uh, this this uh, John Beagle's writing and his testimony of Horatius Bonar, because I too was changed uh, by the writing of Horatius Bonar, a, a 19th century Scottish preacher uh, of this evangelical free church over in Scotland uh, over a century ago. He His ministry continues even to this day, uh, continues through this little book. Uh, it continues through this incredible articulation of the gospel, of this story of grace. Um, uh, let me read you a passage, actually, um, out of this book, um, just to sort of whet your appetite for um, what you can expect in this in this book. It, it reads so incredibly well. This is Bonar. He's he's writing, and he says this. Grace does not stand upon the distant mountaintop and call on the sinner to climb up the steep heights that he may obtain its treasures. No, grace comes down into the valley in quest of him. No, it stretches down its hands into the very lowest depths of the horrible pit to pluck him thence out of the miry clay. It does not offer to pay the ninety and nine talents. If he will pay the remaining one, it provides payment for the whole Whatever the sum may be, it does not offer to complete the work. If he will only begin, begin it by doing what he can. Grace takes the whole work in hand from first to last, presupposing the sinner's total helplessness. Grace does not bargain with the sinner that if he will throw off a few of his sins and put forth some efforts after better things, it will step in and relieve him of the rest by forgiving and cleansing him. No, grace comes up to him at once with nothing nothing short of complete forgiveness as the starting point of all his, his efforts to be holy. I mean... I am just blown away by just that passage alone. I invite you to read um, the rest of this book. It's 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 short enough. It's concise enough where you can really delve into it and you can read it through. I've read it through probably four or five times. Um, it's 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 able to be chewed on and read through uh, in really uh, easy uh, easy chunks. Um, 
And I share that story with you just because I'm so grateful for the fact of ministers who have ministered faithfully uh, in years gone by and their ministry is continuing to this day. Who I, I, I highly doubt that Horatius Bonar, when he was ministering in the 19, in the 19th century, ever imagined that his work would continue on hundreds of years later and influence, and influence a, a pastor in central Pennsylvania, let alone, um, and his work has gone far beyond that. Um, but it would influence me is what is quite remarkable to me. And this is just what I love, uh, about the gospel that we are in, in, entrusted with, that I'm entrusted with to minister, uh, that it connects me to a, a Scottish guy ministering in the 19th century. And as we were talking about earlier, it connects me to those apostles in that upper room who, who, in, who witnessed the institution of the Lord's Supper with Jesus himself. Uh, this is what we are given in uh, as the church. This is what I'm given as a minister of the gospel. Uh, and I hope that uh, it encourages you, that it blesses you. I'll be sure to link to all these stories and things that I've been talking about this morning. Uh, I pray that you've been blessed. Uh, thank you for uh, for listening uh, and, in, and joining me uh, in this uh, le- this. Uh, recent episode of the Ministry Minded Podcast. I hope that you've been blessed uh, by what you've heard, uh, but what I've encouraged and what I've shared. Uh, if you want to, you can subscribe to this show. Uh, but thank you as always for listening and, and commenting and subscribing. And I'll, I'll see you in the next episode. Blessings.